The Tablet Show, episode 79, with guest Todd Anglin. Recorded live Friday, March 29th, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Todd Anglin about building mobile apps with HTML5. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's uh, for your tablet pleasure. And uh, Richard's here. I'm here. Todd Anglin is here. Hey, Richard. Buddy. What's up? Well, you know, plunking my way along. I'm finally getting more and more. I've got several tablets floating around the house and starting to see where they like to live. And, you know, there's always a tablet living beside the big TV. Always. I've been getting to be a big believer in this whole second screen idea that while you're watching TV, you have another screen to do stuff. And what if you don't watch TV? Well, Aaron lies the question, and then it's not going to end up over there, is it? And it's not a second screen. Yeah. In fact, I've come to watching reruns of Good Eats while walking on the treadmill. That's fun for me. That's great, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and, and Alton Brown's thrown all of his shows up to, uh, to YouTube. It's great. Yeah. So I can cancel cables, what you're saying. You know, you would not be alone. <laughs> uh, better know framework. Here we go. <laughs> Hit me. What do you got? If you go to tinyurl.com slash J-S-T-E-N, that's J-S-10, JavaScript 10, or 10 Things You Didn't Know JavaScript Could Do. This is an article from .NET Magazine. It's uh, dated June 25th, 2012. And you can all do all kinds of crazy stuff with JavaScript, and everybody knows that. But there's some particularly cool things here, like gamepad-controlled 3D games. There's your second screen. Flash on the iPad, running a web server, and more. So there's some great examples of things that you probably aren't thinking of if you're a JavaScript programmer, even if you're not, here in this amazing blog post. And what's the link again? It is tinyurl.com slash J-S-T-E-N or J-S-10. Right. Awesome. And I'm just going to let you check it out because it's just too cool. Yeah. Well, just people are taking JavaScript to new heights. Stuff you just couldn't imagine it would do. Yeah. It's almost like it's a real language. It's getting there. <laughs> Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 76. And that's the one we did with Josh Twist, where we talked about building mobile services, right? The, a, the Azure mobile services set. Right. And this question is from Steve Pasco, And it's actually a question, not just a comment. It says, after listening to the show, thinking this might be a good database replacement for Node web apps... Uh, currently, you can use ORM NPMs, but if I could utilize Azure Mobile Services as a simple REST call for storing and retrieving my data, this frees up dependencies just a little bit more. Are there any resources out there mentioning this particular setup? And as much as I can answer this question for you, Steve, I see that fellow tablet show listeners provided several answers to Steve, which is pretty awesome. You know, that's good stuff. But the answer I would have given and the one that one of the other folks there did give was in the Azure Mobile Services API reference is a REST kit. Yeah. So it's there. You just configure it and you are off. And Steve even responded to this and said, hey, I didn't know it was there. I added a few headers into my calls and boom, it just worked. This is magical and amazing. And I'll include a link in the show notes for uh, the uh, REST API reference for Azure Mobile Services. So Steve, Thanks so much for your comment. That's awesome. And uh, fun to see the Tablet Show community helping each other out. I'll send a Tablet Show mug off to you. And if you'd like a Tablet Show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com. And with that, let us welcome back to the show Todd Anglin. Todd is VP of HTML5 Web and Mobile Tools at Telerik, a leading vendor of development, team productivity, and automated testing tools, as well as UI components and content management solutions. He currently leads the Global Kendo UI team, which builds professional tools with everything you need to create sites and mobile apps with HTML5 and JavaScript. 
Todd is an active author and speaker focusing on technologies like HTML5, JavaScript, and CSS. He's a Microsoft MVP, ASP Insider, founder and president of the North Houston.net Users Group, and an O'Reilly author. Welcome back, Todd. Thank you guys for having me back on here. Pleasure to be here. That's a nice long, long intro. Makes me sound like I know what I'm, I'm maybe I know what I'm doing here. Well, <laughs> and there's no doubt about that. So uh, we um, did a little show with you in Redmond on the road trip, uh, probably our second stop, I think it was. Yeah, it was our second stop. Yeah, it was early. It's been a while. And then promptly lost the file. Yeah. We were having some <laughs> technical difficulties when we started rolling there. Well, you know, yeah, because we lost the first show in Vancouver because it was my recorder and it failed. So then we bought a new recorder and we used it for your show, but it was different than the recorder we expected and the configuration was wrong and that failed. Configuration was wrong, yeah. But you got the rest of them. You got the good ones. You know, we threw away the early the early bad ones. Oh, come on. It was a great show. Oh, nice. Yeah, thank you. You know what? I, I'm sad because I thought that conversation that we had in Seattle was really awesome. It was. And I, and I hate losing those things. But, you know, in the end, I think on the road trip, the, the 38 stops, we lost four shows. Yeah. Which is, wow. you know, it just goes to speak at how hard road trips are, that stuff goes wrong. But we managed to get them all replaced except this one. And I feel sort of remiss because it was one of my favorite conversations that we'd never sat down and done this conversation about building mobile apps in HTML5. Before we did the show in Redmond, you did a presentation about HTML5 JavaScript, which I thought was really a, a nice balanced way to look at the current state of everything, you know, and of course... It, it all comes down to, you know, what should you use to build? What kind of technology should we build this app with? And, uh, you know, you had pros and cons of each. But um, tell us the, the the main sort of push that you uh, did at the end there in that talk about HTML5 and JavaScript. What was your main argument there? Sure. You know, I think th there's no question that when you look at mobile apps and how you build mobile apps today, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of new ways being pushed forward of the ways you can manage building apps to reach multiple devices. And I think that's the underlying problem, or maybe the overarching problem, is unlike the last 20 years of building software, for the most part, we've been able to target one platform, predominantly Windows. Modern software developers have to deal with a multi-operating system reality. We will very likely never go back to a, a monoculture of operating systems. So if that's the case, as software developers, we have to figure out how do we build and then maintain applications that are written for multiple operating systems um, and multiple form factors, all these other things that go in with that. And so HTML5 has really emerged as one of the leading options for tackling this problem because not only does it draw on a skill set that almost every particularly front-end developer has some amount of uh, familiarity with, it's something we already know, we can ramp up quickly, but it also happens to be the one technology runtime that basically exists everywhere. And that is HTML5's one and only undeniable benefit, is, is the only language, you know, and I say HTML5, I should be clear, I'm talking about an umbrella term sure. for JavaScript, CSS, the things that go with that, the, right. the web standards, if you will. But it's the only runtime that is literally everywhere. That is its definitive advantage. And it's where we see platforms today, things like iOS, Android, desktops, and it's also on the platforms that are coming tomorrow. And even this year, I mean, it's kind of nice to have this updated conversation because as we move into 2013, we can look down the road in this year and we have six new operating systems this year, most of which are putting HTML5 at the center of their app model. Tizen OS backed by Samsung and Intel, Firefox OS, Ubuntu Phone, even things like Windows 8 and Chrome OS all put HTML5 and JavaScript at the center of their app model. Wow. So it's really yeah. the fastest way to reach the largest number of users. And for mobile modern apps, that's often one of the goals you have. You know, I almost wonder if we're not talking about the right thing. We talk about operating systems. Isn't the operating system, when we talk about HTML5, WebKit, Chrome, or IE? It's certainly the runtime. No question yeah. about that. In, in the same way we might talk about .NET being the runtime on Windows or something of that nature. Uh, and very much so on mobile, WebKit is the predominant uh, runtime. In fact, made more so with Opera's recent announcement that they're changing out their core runtime with a WebKit-based solution. Yeah. And we actually talked to Aaron Gustafson about that last week. And, uh, and you know, he made a very valid point that WebKit's in danger of fragmentation now because each of these different groups are implementing it are going to implement at different rates. Right. And, and there's no question that uh, there's been a lot of very smart commentary lately trying to re-educate people that WebKit is not a, a monolithic thing. It's not right. like 
once you're on WebKit, everybody's identical. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces that make up WebKit that the browser makers like Opera and Chrome and Safari can all plug in and change. But there is a lot more similarity between all the different WebKit based browsers than there is, let's say, between a WebKit browser and Firefox, a WebKit browser and IE. So you get a little bit more of a familiar starting point, more of a common denominator for all those different browsers. And on mobile, particularly with this Opera move, it's predominantly WebKit. I mean, when you look at the browser, mobile browser market share, if you look at the actual browsers, the dominant browsers, obviously, are mobile Safari because of iOS, mobile Android's default browser, and then you find Opera, BlackBerry's browser, and way down there you find Mobile IE and some others. But that top five is all WebKit-based browsers. So when you talk mobile, there's a lot more consistency between browsers and devices than you might find on desktop, where there's more challenges when you work with things like HTML5 and JavaScript between IE, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, and the legacy browsers that exist there too. I have been astonished to go to websites and say, this website optimized for iPad. Right, right. <laughs> kind of funny. They don't even want my desktop machine on their site. Hmm. You know, and that's a, an interesting phenomenon of itself. Um, for a long time, the perspective of building software has been build for the desktop first, and then when you're ready, add your mobile component. But with more and more of the world accessing the web predominantly through devices, uh, particularly in the developing portions of the world, but even in, in the U.S., there's a large portion of the population which now does its casual browsing through devices, tablets of different sizes, phones. So there's almost now the time for developers and companies to completely rethink the way you approach software. Mobile first, and then a desktop component if you need it. And mm-hmm. Instagram's a, a great example of this. For a long time, all Instagram had was a single mobile app on iOS, apparently good enough to be worth almost a billion dollars. Uh, but then you come back around and now only in the last six months have they actually added a legitimate web presence or a web interface to that app. So mobile first is a new way for developers and companies to think about their development at the same time HTML5 is becoming part of the conversation. Yeah, I'm wondering if 2013, it's either 2013 or 2014, there'll be more mobile bandwidth over the internet than there will be desktop. I mean, it's, it's getting serious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the I don't remember where the trend began. Maybe it was late 2010, I think. We started to see more smartphones and more tablets ship every quarter than we did see new PCs ship. It was the first time we'd ever seen that that eclipse happen. And since it's happened, it's never gone back. PCs and tablets just keep shipping more and more and people are accessing the internet more and more through these devices. And the PC will remain and a lot of people confuse this point to think that it means the PC is going away. There'll always be a place for the PC, but what that place is could be very different in the future. I mean, market share of PCs is shrinking, but it only had, that was the only place it could go. Right, right. <laughs> it was so utterly dominant. Now that the, ta- and that, not that I don't think that a tablet's a PC anyway, actually, it is a very personal computer. Hexo's a phone, but you know, we've categorized these things differently. You can see they are carving out a niche in the space. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, a lot of it's about the context. And you talk about it being a PC or being, a, you know, other th- pieces of technology where we've had very clear names like phones. You know, these things, as they become devices, as they become appliances to a certain extent, you know, we stop thinking about them in the same way we thought about a PC. It's kind of like old cars versus new modern cars. Old cars, it was kind of easy to change your oil on your own because the filter was like in its own. You could access all the pieces very easily. Things weren't crammed together. Right. You know, parts are available. But modern cars... Good luck. I, mean, I don't. I, I like consider myself handy, but I don't even try anymore. It's so much electronics, so much complexity, and you just you know you've, we've learned that cars now are reliable enough. We don't need to have that kind of um, home tinkering. And computers are a lot the same way. You know, I've got a MacBook Pro uh, Retina sitting in front of me here, which I can't upgrade ma- basically anything in it. The memory, the hard drive. You know, it's it's basically just it is as it comes. But I'm okay with that because it. I don't. I don't think I need to upgrade this every two years. It's fast enough for all the kinds of computing I'm doing, and it's less stress. It just does what it's supposed to do, and you don't think about it. So I say all that as a roundabout way of saying the way people are approaching computers, you know, quote-unquote, devices, is becoming much more as a singular thing, not as this modular thing which we upgrade and hack and change over time. I think that is opening the door to these kinds of the kinds of things tablets are doing. We don't think about them as being complex. We think about them being simple, things that augment our daily life, um, not something we go do as a destination. 
And I just don't, you know, maybe I'm not in this groove because I just don't use my mobile device that way. Of course, I have a lot of desktop machines. Maybe that's the issue. <laughs> you do probably have an inordinate amount of computer hardware. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fair. I believe that would be the correct description. Although the proliferation of tablets in my household are amazing. But, you know, I don't see tablets going out of the house. I don't even consider them mobile, really. They live at home. Sure. But, you know, what, the thing I think that we start to look at is how, in the context of using different computing devices, are you leaning back on the couch, consuming, primarily consuming data? Are you leaning in at your desktop, primarily creating, editing while reading data? Or are you on the go trying to just quickly catch an email? I think those different contexts lend themselves to different devices. And so I know you mentioned early in the show, you, you're, you find your tablet sitting next to the TV. That's yep. that perfect kind of lean back experience and consume data. And I would imagine if you wanted to sit down and edit some audio, edit some video, write a document, you'd probably end up at one of your desktop machines leaning in. And I think developers have to be aware of these different contexts. And it plays into the idea that they're you really don't create software anymore for not only different platforms, but also, also different styles of use. And I think developers need to make sure they remain aware of that and don't just try to cram one application onto all the different screens that exist today. So how does you know, HTML5 really play a role in these different work styles or use styles? You know, I think it, it lends itself really well, particularly if we were to carry this line of thinking that the... You know, well, actually, I should clarify something up front. A lot of people look at HTML5 and JavaScript and think that the messages write once, run everywhere. Right. And while you can do that to some extent because the runtime is very familiar, it's not really the, the core benefit. Um, the core benefit is you have one set of skills, of course. Mm. So you learn one skill set and use that skill set everywhere, become a real master of one core technology. But you still should be thinking about each device and what makes that device special, you know, the sensors, the context in which it's used, and build apps that are tailored to those different environments. But if you're using HTML5 and JavaScript, you're not starting from scratch every time. There's a lot of shared engineering that can go between devices. There's a lot of shared skill sets and problem-solving techniques, debugging techniques, which will span devices. So it makes the context shift between, let's say, developing for an iPad and then developing for an Android tablet, and then developing for Windows or a Mac, makes that context shift much smaller. So you can be more productive as you build these different apps um, for different users in different contexts. So HTML5 is the great unifier in a way. It gives you this sort of almost, if I, if I can borrow a Doctor Who reference uh, for <laughs> those who are fans. Never mind. This is your, your sonic screwdriver of programming technology. You just have to wave HTML5 and JavaScript at it, and out yeah. comes the right result. <laughs> I love it. How do you feel about the whole responsive web design thing, this idea that I should be building pages that'll work on any size device? Responsive design is a cool cool thing. I mean, obviously, the idea that we can create one app and it just kind of automatically reformats itself and, and adapts dynamically to different screen sizes that, that we don't program for specifically is a cool thing. But I think they're almost in two different categories. Um, in my mind, there's there's sort of websites or the site experience, and then there are apps. And the, both tend to accomplish different things. Sites tend to be more read-only, more presentational, like a blog or information about a company, where apps tend to be more transactional, like I'm doing something, I'm editing something, I'm searching for something. And where I see responsive design really playing more of a role is in the ability to take a website and have it easily present well on a desktop and then adapt to a tablet and then adapt to a phone or different screen sizes. And where I see apps playing more of a case is where we're actually building tailored experiences for the desktop and right. then building a tailored experience for the tablet. And I have not yet seen a way to really automatically transform that from one screen size or one context to the next. There's so much thinking in that process. Do I have a grid on a desktop? and a list on a mobile device. It's just very hard to make automatic decisions around that. So, I mean, responsive web design works well in the consumptive mode, but it's really going to be hard in the uh, interactive mode or the you know, creation mode. Yeah, I think so today. I mean, I think more, more needs to be done there if we're going to get to the point where we can responsively relay out applications like you're describing, then we're going to have to, as a community, come together with some kind of convention. So if I have a grid on a desktop, that becomes something on a tablet. Yeah. There's no real convention around that today. I mean, we have found a couple of cases here and there where they've done a good job. And the one that comes to my mind, Carl, is DN Simple. Right. Love it. Their client on, on the desktop, which is all, of course, HTML, uh, completely web-based, is very usable, but it renders down on a phone amazingly well. 
Yeah, the phone ver. I've actually changed. Like I said, I added MX Records to my mail server for Google. Um, you know, copying the MX the the uh, addresses, the IP addresses out of a Google tab and pasting them into you know um, uh, dnsimple.com on my phone while standing in the security line at an airport. It's just crazy. You know, and you introduced the idea that there's two approaches to this that often get confused and mixed. Uh, there's responsive design where you're basically adapting the rendering of one one markup. So one structure gets adapted to different screen sizes. Right. And then there's alternative rendering where you're you're going to the same spot. So you may be going to the same URL, but what's actually happening is you're getting a different presentation, a different structure with a different style. Um, so it's almost like having multiple versions of the interface tailored to the different screen sizes um, as opposed to one structure that just automatically flexibly scales and adapts between the different screens. And that really means there must be some computation like on the server saying, oh, this is a phone, so you know, send these bits. Exactly. And it also means that there's a little bit more difference between the different presentations. It's not like one code base, one structure that just goes everywhere and then with a little CSS magic looks right. People are actually in those uh, alternate rendering cases building different tailored structures. So when we find it's a tablet, we ship this down. If we find it's a phone, we ship this down. Um, even though you may be going to the same place as an user to inter- interact with that site. Or you even do a redirect and you go to an M dot. Right, exactly. I mean, I love the idea that there's only one page. So there's only one thing to maintain. You know, features arrive at the same time kind of mentality. But I, I just don't, I don't know how much sacrificing we have to make when you get to these more complex apps. Right. I think there's still convention that needs to be, or not necessarily convention, but um, we still need to mature that process because there are a lot of different ideas about that today. And whether or not it's the right idea to just try to make one core structure. When I say structure in this context with HTML5, we really mean one HTML rendering. Right. We really try to make one HTML rendering work across all screen sizes, really leveraging CSS to manipulate things. Or do we get very specific and say, for desktop, we have this rendering and this CSS. And if we detect a tablet, we automatically present this rendering in CSS uh, and have this kind of segmented approach to our code base. Um, and there are different schools of thought on this. And I tend to sort of favor the, the latter, particularly for applications uh, where there's a lot of stuff going on. This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the Tablet Show. In your talk, you brought up this great uh, term, the uncanny valley, which I hadn't really heard of in terms of uh, uh, HTML apps before. Can you talk a little bit about that as one of the challenges of um, developing on this on the HTML platform? Sure. I figured we'd come back around to that at some point. Um, Uncanny Valley, for those who aren't familiar with the term, really sort of has its roots in robotics. And it's a a scientifically studied uh, phenomenon which really describes people's comfortableness with technology. And if you were to think about different robots you've seen, uh, if if you see a a machine in an industrial factory line which looks nothing like a human being, it's just a very clear robot, people are pretty comfortable with that. There's no uneasiness with that robot. We can identify it's something different. Then we can imagine as we go up the scale of robots becoming more human-like, our comfortableness starts to change. And what's been observed in uh, in studies is that when you build a robot that looks almost human but not quite perfect, 
there's this sudden drop off in people's humans, you and I's comfortableness with that robot. We become very uncomfortable with something which looks almost right, but isn't quite right. And right. this shows up in, in video games too. We often hear the term now used for video games, which get very close to looking real, but something is off. And as we get closer to looking real, what happens is we as humans detect all the little things that make something look not perfect. To me, the epitome of that was uh, the movie Polar Express. Do you remember that? That's the, uh, the Tom Hanks movie, Tom right? Tom Hanks movie where they did the motion capture technology to, uh, to, to animate the, the figures. So the, these animated characters were moving with signals that they were getting directly from actors, you know, by putting sensors all over their bodies or something like that. Right. And it was very weird. Yeah, and, and you kind of felt suddenly uncomfortable. And, you yeah. know, Disney went, Disney went through this. Other animation studios have been through this. I forget which movie it was at the, at the moment, but there was a movie where it may have actually been Shrek, and now that I think about it more. Mm. What, it, what basically happened is they animated the human characters so good, it made people uncomfortable. They, right. they got, got distracted by it. Like, they'd actually done a really good job making them look human, but it took away from the story, and so they stepped back. They made them look more character or they made it their features more exaggerated, right? They made yeah. it feel more cartoony, and that made people more comfortable. So this phenomenon is well, well documented. The Uncanny Valley describes that sudden drop-off in comfortableness people have. And I think it applies to HTML5, and particularly apps. Um, you know, when we talk about building apps with HTML5, you could think about the starting point being a website. Everybody's comfortable seeing a website built with HTML. We've seen it forever. We know what it is. We know HTML belongs there. There's... Uh, a lot of familiarity and a lot of comfortableness. And then you might take HTML from there and build a mobile site. Now, a mobile site still lives in the browser, so we're still comfortable with the idea of HTML, um, but it's still starting to look a little bit more mobile-ish. And then you might think about a browser app, and now we're using HTML5 to build something that looks like an app, but is deployed to a device via the browser. Mm. So it's looking more app-like but it's still in the browser. And that browser shell still has a lot of cognitive power. A lot of people still associate a lot about what's going on, what they'll forgive, what kind of quirks they expect to see when it's in that browser shell. Right, that it could all go away if I hit back. Exactly. <laughs> but and that's what I mean, the number one feature of the browser, right? The back button. Yep. But then when you make the next leap, so when you go from a brow an app made to look like an app deployed from a in a browser to a app made to look like an app using HTML5 installed on the device. You know, we've really made that cross now. This is where we see the uncanny valley sort of kick in, where if you don't make it look right, and I mean right as in it doesn't move correctly, it stutters, the animations are wrong, maybe the styling is wrong, then people suddenly reject it. There's this suddenly this uncanny valley of now it just feels wrong. This doesn't feel like an app. It doesn't feel right. And we saw this very very clearly last year with Facebook's sort of debacle. It wasn't the technology that was bad, HTML5. It was their implementation. They didn't get the details right. And so people rejected it in mass. You know, it doesn't feel right. And suddenly HTML5 showed its uncanny valley face. Mm. So I think when developers choose to build apps, apps that are meant to look, feel, install like apps using HTML5, they have to mind this gap. They have to mind the uncanny valley and really focus on building optimized experiences using frameworks like the ones, of course, that, that we make. And I would, be, I would be a bad vice president if I didn't plug things like Kendall UI and, and the Icenium tools that Telerik has that helps developers do this. But you've really got to focus on getting the details right if you're going to convince a user that the app is right and not get them focused on the uncanny valley effect of it feeling just off. Well, let's talk about that then. I'm, it's interesting that one of, the, one of the triggers in my mind when I'm using an HTML app versus a native app is, you know, it might look the same, but when I press a button, I've said this before, when I press a button to select something, typically nothing will happen in an HTML app, even though stuff is happening in the background. So I might think the app is frozen because there isn't that instant update to the to the UI or to the button. Or, you know, things qu move quickly in a native app that sometimes based on your internet connection won't happen, uh, you know, if the HTML has to be redrawn. So how do you guys address that? Sure. I mean, and there are lots of technical reasons for some of these things. Um, because HTML5 apps often build on traditional web frameworks, in the case of responsiveness, like you're identifying, there's actually a built-in delay to most web frameworks. Um, because 
when Apple introduced the iPhone, they didn't want to break the web as it existed in 2006 and 7. They made sure that the browser on the device still would respond to things like click events, uh, which would come from a mouse that obviously doesn't exist on a phone. But because most code is written to respond to click events, uh, what will happen in a lot of web, web browsers on phones is that it will listen for a click event. And if a click event doesn't happen, then it'll fire a touch event. So there's this 300 millisecond delay built into a lot of mobile browsers. And if you don't account for that, if you don't make your framework work around that, you're going to have that sort of delayed interaction feeling that you're describing. So there are all these little things. I mean, there, and there are a lot more like that that you have to account for if you're really going to optimize and make your framework feel right on a mobile device. And I will add, I can add it now, I couldn't have said this last year, we've got uh, one of our real mobile experts doing some interesting research right now around animations on a mobile device using HTML5. And one of the things he's found in his research is showing is even something simple like applying the wrong kind of CSS to your HTML can slow down an app to the point where you lose that all-important 60 frames per second hmm. smoothness that makes an animation look native, look um, look like it should. Right. And he's discovering now that just by applying simpler themes, fewer gradients, uh, less rounded corners, that kind of stuff, you can improve the frame rate of your mobile app and make it feel more native. And I think uh, these are the things we're building into our products, into things like Kendo UI, so developers can benefit from all the research we constantly do around this and make their apps feel more native while using HTML5. I can understand like a general malaise, like a slowness that overtakes the whole app. You know, if there's like a an extra couple of milliseconds delay, but, you know, it, it's the long delay that's caused by... Well, a developer, you know, when they when they get that button click event or whatever happens in JavaScript, not updating the UI automatically before going off and making an asynchronous call, you know, to get the data for the next UI update, to update that UI immediately, even though, you know, that that we don't have all the data that we need. Sure. And I observed this. Uh, I was working with some startups um recently and looking at apps they were building, they were using HTML5 and they were showing me their progress and said, yeah, we, th we think HTML5 and JavaScript isn't performant enough. And they would show me, uh, click on an event or click on a button. And then as you've described, nothing would happen. Mm. I said, well, that's interesting. Now let's, let's inspect this a little bit more closely, open up some diagnostic tools. We did it again. We clicked on the event and we noticed what was happening immediately after is they're going to call a web service to get some data back to the app, as you would expect. And all of that delay, all of that lag was not the HTML5 and the JavaScript. It was the slow network latency hmm. of going off and getting this data. They, they just So right. this is one of those cases, again, where it's not really HTML5 and JavaScript problem. No, it's the fact that it's a web app. Exactly. If people don't know that and they can't make it work right, they're going to assume. You know, it's, you've got to make all these pieces work right. Right. You really can't just assume that click bang, the data is going to be there. You, you have to have some sort of interim kind of update, you know, some movement on the screen just to let the user know that it's not crashed. Because exactly. you know, native apps crash. They don't wait for data. They crash, right? <laughs> right. It's the same experience a native app would have, too. And same challenge, I should say, a native app would have. Sure. So I think I mentioned this in our presentation last year. HTML5 is no silver bullet. You still have to be a developer and you still have to create good apps and good code. But what HTML5 does give you, and this is, as I've said before, and we'll say a thousand times again, it gives you the ability to get onto every device, onto right. TVs, into cars, onto tablets, onto desktops. And that is, again, its primary, primary advantage. So right. you can reach everybody everywhere. Um, and, and that's a real benefit today. But it doesn't turn out to be easy to be on every device. Sure, right. right. Just possible. So um, we've talked about Kendo UI. You know, you've heard the ads on .NET Rocks and stuff, and pretty vague in the in the ad, in the ads. Uh, you know that it just makes it easy to create mobile apps with no you know JavaScript writing and all that stuff. But just walk us through a little bit because it's been a while since we talked about Kendo UI. Now I know there's an MVC four version as well. But uh, just give us the give us the typical scenario of using Kendo UI. Sure. Kendo UI, if people aren't familiar, if they've not heard the ads, uh, it, what we tried to do when we set out to build this was pull together everything developers need to build both sites and mobile apps using HTML and JavaScript. So we wanted to address that kind of Frankenstein framework behavior that had popped up, where if you really wanted to sit down and build something professional using JavaScript, your, your starting point was usually jQuery. 
And then hunting and looking and testing and integrating hundreds of little plugins, trying to make them all work together. And then once you got them working together, the burden was now on you to keep them working together, to upgrade them, to troubleshoot them. And we said, this is okay for the hobbyist or for the guy who's really passionate about doing this in his spare time. But as more people want to build more professional, reliable software on HTML and JavaScript, they need to have a library that has all these pieces together, integrated, tested, supported. And that's what Kendo UI does. We deliver it through three pieces. Kendo UI Web, which is where you find the traditional website, web application style widgets like grids and tree views and all that. Uh, Kendo UI DataViz, which is where we ship some pretty cool HTML5 DataViz. And our la latest release, we just added things like spark lines and bullet graphs to the existing gauges and charts. And then Kendo UI Mobile. And Kendo UI Mobile is sort of relevant to our conversation today because that's a framework where we help you build that native-like mobile experience mm. using HTML and JavaScript. You could deploy that through the browser. You could wrap that up with PhoneGap and deploy that on the device through an app store if you wanted to. But that framework is really focusing on helping you build the app experience more so than even the site experience. And there are templates built in that make it look like, you know, your your iPhone app, your Android app, your and and uh, the other issue last time we talked about it was Windows Phone uh, which was kind of a challenge but just because of the way the UI works in Windows, so sort of non-appy. Yeah, so I guess this conversation is pretty timely because we just had a major release uh, last week, and we've now added Windows Phone 8 support to Kendo UI Mobile. So, so now what you can do with Kendo UI Mobile is build an app, and the framework automatically adapts between platforms. So if I build an app and I open it on my iOS device, it looks like iOS, if I open that same app on Android, it looks like Android, on BlackBerry like BlackBerry. And now with the latest release, if I open it on Windows Phone 8, it looks like Windows Phone with all the Metro style animations, the Metro styling on the app. So one more platform added to that automatic reach. That's great. Because iPhone and Android are just not that different. You know, they're exactly. a little style different, but, but Metro is a totally different ball of totally wax. Totally different. Yeah, and in we, that's what's made it the hardest to approach. And so in this version, what we've tried to do is help you get to the styling. So adjusting the animations, adjusting the default themes to have that Windows Phone Metro, if I can still use that term, Windows modern style app uh, theming that is all important to make your app feel right on the device. I have a test for this. Do you work for Microsoft? I do not. You can say it. Thank you very much. That, that makes my life so much easier. <laughs> I like that test. I'm going to use that in Yeah, the it's a good test. It's a good test. And, and the funny part is when you do it to a Microsoft person and they, look, they look so sad that you can say it and they can. <laughs> it's true. It's the best name. It's because the it German works. insurance company or mar supermarket isn't going to sue me yeah. for saying it. I have nothing. I'm just a confused consumer. <laughs> <laughs> so the Metro styling that we apply. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Tackles the, uh, the Windows Phone look and feel. The Metro I'm styling. Metro and I'm proud. <laughs> <laughs> and the other challenges we have to address will come later. You know, the, the things like panoramas and the UI conventions that are specific to Windows Phone, we're not sure exactly yet how we'll address those, but we, we are really listening to feedback from our customers now. Mm. So what we found, and this is a trend that applies to Windows Phone just as much as iOS, Android, and others, over the last year, we've observed a shift away from building apps that look like the native apps towards a trend of building apps that look like the app. So this idea yeah. of app identity has become very much uh, an in-vogue approach. And you can find examples of this in things like the Twitter app or uh, Instagram, where the app has its own identity. And no matter where you find that app, whether it's on iOS or Android or Windows Phone, it looks like that app. They're not trying to adapt to look like the platform. They're trying to make you... a affiliate or have an affinity towards that apps I UX, that apps interaction. And that's actually simplifying things for us in a way, because now you know we can really focus on letting you build your app's identity, make sure that identity looks and feels right in terms of animations and that kind of thing on the different platforms. But this app identity theme, I think, may actually simplify developers' lives a bit instead of trying to really, you know, how do I make it look metro on Windows Phone and Android on Android and all these other things that happen today. I totally agree. I'm with you. I like the whole, you know, brand identity via styling. So long as you're following some very sacred conventions and uh, and styles, I think you're okay. You know, here's the other thing I want to get back to. Uh, as far as Kendo UI goes, 
what does the development experience look like? Because you say using HTML5 and JavaScript, but how much do I actually have to do? Do I create just a, a simple view that doesn't have any styles in terms of, you know, buttons and input boxes and things like that? And then do I just write a sort of a view model? Do I take a view model approach to that where I just have my sort of code behind view model, whatever my logic is in there, and you guys do the rest? Or do I actually have to get into the JavaScript and the HTML5? There are a couple of different approaches you can take. And we're not, as a rule, we're not overly dogmatic about how you build your apps. We try to support a lot of the different approaches people prefer for apps, like the model view approach or just using raw data, as some people like to do uh, mm. without the model view. Uh, one does not require the other. So if you're a JavaScript master, or really not even master, you just like JavaScript, you're comfortable there, then mm -hmm. you can use all the capabilities and power of Kendo UI using just JavaScript and HTML. Okay. If, however, you don't like doing that, and we know there are a lot of developers who don't, we're one of the only frameworks today which has really tried to also make it possible to use all of the features of Kendo UI using your server-side skills. So we ship what we call server wrappers. And server wrappers are essentially abstractions on JavaScript, which allow you to focus on the skill set you have, like C-sharp or Java or PHP, which are the three wrappers we have today. And then those wrappers will automatically spit out all the necessary JavaScript and HTML to make your Kendo UI work in your application. So wow. it depends on what you prefer. Uh, if you want to stay in your server-side skills, we have wrappers to help you there. If you're comfortable in JavaScript, you can just work directly with JavaScript HTML in any language you like and adopt Kendo UI pretty easily. And what about TypeScript? Could I use that to generate the JavaScript? We, a we actually just shipped TypeScript definitions with our last release as well. So we now have full TypeScript definitions for Kendo UI 2. Well, hot diggity dog. We're moving fast here. We've got a lot of work yet to do, but we're pretty uh, excited by the things we've done so far. That is very cool. And I, and I think the reporting pieces are some of the neatest pieces because actually making good visualizations of data in HTML is a serious pain in the butt. Yeah, absolutely. And making it so that it looks great on a desktop and then it still looks great on that iPad or that tablet that the executives want to pick up and see that dashboard is the real trick. Um, and, and we're giving developers the opportunity to do that with Kendo UI DataViz. The jQuery part concerns me. When you go onto a phone, do you really want to switch to jQuery mobile? Does that work? Uh, well, there's not really a switch to jQuery mobile per se. You j the only external dependency for any of Kendo UI across the board, whether we're talking Kendo UI mobile or Kendo UI web, data viz, the only external dependency today is jQuery. And that means the jQuery core library. Uh, and so on phone, you still have that core jQuery library dependency, but everything else is still Kendo UI, optimized heavily for performance on mobile devices, optimized to make sure that you get that mobile app experience. Now, if, if what you're asking is, is that jQuery core dependency a challenge? And I've heard people ask this before, you know, because there's this assumption now that jQuery is too big for phones in some respects. Right. It's something we're, lo we're looking at because there certainly are pieces of it that may not be. But one of the, the early observations we've had as we've researched, you know, should we dump jQuery on mobile devices for libraries like Zepto? Is that a lot of developers still <laughs> use plugins at some point or another in addition to Kendo UI? that require jQuery. So what we, what we would end up doing then is requiring you to use this micro library, and then you'd still re-add jQuery to your application so you could use XYZ plugin that, that you may have wanted to add. So in other words, we're not saving you much, if anything, by cutting the jQuery dependency. So we don't see it as being a big, a big problem today. Um, but it's something we're looking at. I mean, we're always trying to make Kendo UI faster. We just don't think jQuery is a problem for speed today. Sure. Good. Well, well, and I also love, you know, this is interesting wave. Have you, have you been to the vanilla JS site? Oh, it's, funny. Oh, it's my favorite JavaScript. I That's love so funny. And at first, I didn't get it. I was one of those people like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, after about, you read it for about two seconds, you, it hits you. But I, we first saw this in Scott Hanselman's talk in the Portland uh, road trip stop. That's where I first saw it. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, launched Kendo UI Labs uh, with our last release where we have integrations with things like AngularJS and Breeze and others. And we have full VanillaJS integration there as well. So if you're <laughs> VanillaJS, <laughs> we support you. The VanillaJS team maintains every byte of code in the framework and works hard each day to make it small and intuitive. Who's using VanillaJS? Glad you asked. Here are a few. Facebook, Google, YouTube, Yahoo, Wikipedia, Windows Live, Twitter, Amazon, LinkedIn, MSN, eBay, Microsoft, Tumblr, Apple, Pinterest, PayPal, Reddit, Netflix, Stacked Overflow. In fact, VanillaJS is already used on more websites than jQuery, Prototype, JS, Mom. 
MooTools, UE, and Google Web Toolkit combined. Nice. <laughs> Good writing. I love it. It's so funny. File size. Yeah. But you get back to the, the, the hard part here. I mean, it's one thing to try and work on mobile devices. In some respects, when you're just going to work on smartphones, like I said, WebKit's enough. And even if you're going to deal with WinPhone and, and, and some of the weird Android options, the form factors are pretty consistent. Like, that's pretty easy. I think it's harder these days to support the old browsers. And I don't even want to talk about IE6 because it looks like it's about gone. Right. But even IE7, it's just yeah. not that easy to make modern apps that modern look run in IE7. Yeah, I mean, this has obviously been the challenge of the web forever. How do you, how do you move forward particularly when you've got a lot of the past holding you back. And I, I would say even IE7 is starting to feel like it's it's not gone by any stretch, but it's certainly getting to the point where IE6 was maybe a year ago in that it's quickly falling off. Um, and this is a challenge. You know, we've seen some people take very bold stands on this, uh, even big properties like Google and things like YouTube and Gmail have made very big stands on cutting off support for IE7 and IE8. Um, Facebook, Yahoo, there's some others that are making these kind of bold decisions, which I think will help us in some respect have more of the industry just agree that there is a baseline that we've all moved on to and older browsers now just are genuinely unsupported. And it helps now that Microsoft is reshipping IE faster. So it's not uncommon, even in .NET, I can remember when Telerik was doing a lot of the uh, early .NET tools, sort of our, our cutoff was often if... Microsoft is shipping .NET 4, then that's when .NET 2 support ends, you know, so that two version cutoff. And right. now that Microsoft is shipping IE 10 and maybe IE 11, you know, around the corner, a lot of people are kind of falling back on that convenient, we'll support two versions back. And so that's how we're kind of getting past IE 6 and 7 and maybe even soon 8 and 9. So I think we're finally getting some momentum to leave some of the legacy behind. Um, and if we could just get everybody up to IE 10, we would be on a much more level playing field. And I think we'll get there, but it's going to still take uh, two or three more years for all the IE folks. That makes us all real HTML5 browsers across the board. And yeah. it, and to be clear, I mean, IE6 was an anomaly in that it came out, there was no competitors left, and it sort of won the web at that point. And then Microsoft stopped working on it for years. Mm, right. and, and so it just got, you know, developers got lazy, and this is, I'm quoting Aaron Guffson here, and and IT departments in general, it's just like, well, there's one platform. So, you know, you started really hooking into the flaws of it, too, so that, you know, those older pages that were deeply embedded in IE6 just didn't work in anything else and weren't going to. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, you reference IE7, that's one of the things that we observe frequently is... There is not much IE7 adoption because most people who actually got past six just kept on going. You know, kept six was sort of like this big anchor. But once you got past six, a lot of people just kept upgrading seven, eight, nine. And you don't have to fix your site because after from IE7 onward, uh, really we started IE8 has the IE7 rendering engine as well. IE9 has the IE7 and IE8 rendering engine as well. You can add a meta tag at the top of a page to tell IE render it using that engine, and it'll right. just keep working. Yeah. So people don't have to fix their sites, and they didn't do that for IE6 for whatever reason. Yeah, and that helps. And you know, in other browser makers are are attacking the problem too because they obviously want to help modern apps and they want their browsers side by side in enterprises and they're creating tools that help enterprise IT put on the user's desktop IE6 when they absolutely need it for that old broken app and then use a modern browser that supports modern standards for everything else. So right. there's a lot of things being done to try to help move the the baseline forward so we can all adopt more of this modern technology. And there's no question on the desktop, it's a little more complicated than on mobile because you do have legacy to deal with. Absolutely. Yep. So we, we should talk a little bit about the hybrid approach. And in particular, you mentioned Icinium, which is uh, Telerik's um, in-the-cloud service. Tell, tell us about Icinium. Sure. Icinium's a pretty cool thing and a very complimentary thing to everything we've been talking about today, including Kendra UI, because its whole purpose is to help simplify hybrid mobile development so that Scenario I described where you actually want to use HTML5 to build an app you could install on a device. 
that ability to install an app requires a little extra help, and that's what we call hybrid application development. Traditionally, we use a framework like Phone or Cordova, which is the open source name for PhoneGap, mm-hmm. and we use a tool like this, which is a native wrapper, to package up all of our HTML and then give our JavaScript access to native APIs like the camera and uh, the local file store and contact lists. We can use this, this proxy to give our JavaScript that extra power, wrap it all up, deploy it through an app store, install it on a device. And this hybrid development is, is really powerful. It's how we get HTML5 installed on devices, but it's also pretty challenging to set up. You've got to use Xcode to do uh, hybrid development for an iOS device, Eclipse or some other tool, and Java to do it for an Android device, and on and on. And so what Isenium does, it takes all of that complexity of getting this set up and maintaining this and moves it to the cloud. Everything's mm-hmm. better in the cloud. Mm-hmm. So we, we ship it all to the cloud. You can now set up your app easily, build it with HTML and JavaScript using Kendo UI Mobile, using whatever you want, and then it'll automatically handle all those dependencies. It'll build your iOS app, it'll build your Android app, help you get it onto your device, do the debugging and the testing. And it's a really incredible way to get started with hybrid development if you've never done it uh, and be really productive in the first five minutes with an app on your device. Yeah, it's just a question of whether the hybrid solution is a better solution. Um, Just saw an example of, I think, what not to do. Uh, Uber, which is the uh, app for getting private car service, to uh, anywhere you are, you sort of say, here's where, you know, you get, you'll give your GPS location, you tell them when you want a car, and I'm more, I think the drivers are basically bidding on it, but it's like, you know, a hound car shows up. It's really kind of a cool app. Originally only iOS, they've got an Android one as well. It just showed up on WinPhone, but I realized as soon as I fired the app up, they took their mobile website and phone gapped it. Right. And that's, you know, and that's the problem. It, as it comes all the way back to that silver bullet idea. People who use these techniques to be lazy will produce bad results. Yeah. These techniques are not about lazy, quick wins. These techniques are about how do I manageably build apps that I can then maintain for multiple platforms for years to come. And, and let's be clear, if you don't choose this, what are your alternatives? If you go to the pure native approach for building apps that you can install, you have to have developers who know Objective-C and Xcode, who yep. know Java and all of the Android APIs, who know .NET and all the Windows Phone APIs, BlackBerry. And then if you have any hope of getting on the new platforms like Tizen, Firefox OS, the rest, you've got to have that too. So there's, you know, there's all this complexity, not only in code, but in skill set you have to manage to build and then maintain those apps. And so that's the choice and the trade-off you're making. Do you want to do that? Or do you want something better? And I think that's the, the trade-off that companies have to make. Where can they invest time and money to get apps onto these devices? I mean, the, the whole thing with the phone gap approach is that you can still work in HTML. So you're using the language you know, at least, but you've got to try to take advantage of the platform you've got in front of you. Exactly. And there's some great phone gap apps out there, and people should go look at the good examples to see that there is there are good and there are bad phone gapped apps. Sure. Um, and so just as there are good and bad developers, you know, it's important for people to recognize often it's the implementation and not the technology at this point that's getting a lot of the um, the bad results out there. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Todd, thank you very much for uh, spending this time with us. Thank you, guys. Hey, and don't lose this recording this time. Ah, <laughs> touche, my friend. Touche. <laughs> well, we'll see you next time on the tablet show.